Welcome to Get in the Herd, a podcast about addiction and recovery brought to you by the McShin Foundation. If you or a loved one are looking for real discussions about addiction, recovery, stigma, advocacy, and most importantly, hope, then stick around. Thanks for joining us. Now sit back and get ready for another great episode of Get in the Herd. Actually, that makes total sense. Yeah. Because <laughs> I know me. You know, so that, that's our life mission. That's the McKenzie mission. You don't have to understand my boundaries to respect them. Well, no, I'm the president co-founder of McShane, a person of long-term recovery from substance use disorders. How do you go about fixing the damage between and the trust between the family after you get out? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I gotta work on that. Like, um, celebrating my six months didn't have a cake. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, oh, hey, welcome to Get in the Herd podcast, brought to you by the McShin Foundation. My name is Art, and today I'm here with Anthony Adams. He's a uh, McShin Foundation participant. Um, he's also my roommate. We live together at Smith House, um, along with uh, nine—I mean, eight other people. You know, it's not just me and Anthony. So, um, how you doing, Anthony? Pretty good. How are you feeling today? Pretty good. Pretty excited. Excited for? Um, just got a new job today, so. Yeah, where you, where is that at? Um, the UPS warehouse. Okay. And uh, what are you going to be doing there? Um, basically, like package handling. Sounds good. Be busy for Christmas holidays. Yeah, probably pretty busy. That's good, man. I'm glad you got that job. We were just talking about it last night, and uh, I feel like Anthony could take on some more responsibility. And I feel like that would, you know, kind of he's leveling up. Basically, he's leveling up. So, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Um, you know, where you were born, um, a little bit about your childhood, and uh, yeah. Let's start with that. Um, well, I was born and raised in Poughkeepsie, New York. It's an hour and a half north of New York City. Um, I I ended up uh, moving down to Virginia when I was about 15 years old because of my dad's job. And my sister and I came down here kicking and screaming. I have a younger sister who's 21 months younger than me. And we've always been pretty close growing up. And... Um, why did you guys come down here? What was the decision like? Why did? Um, my dad got a better, higher-paying job. Okay. And we have also always had family in Richmond, so. All right. And so you, your life before this, basically, your whole you know childhood and basically you growing up has been in New York. Yeah, pretty much. Okay, so that's. That's a pretty big change, I guess. You know, well, how far away from the city, like from New York City, were you? Um, we were an hour and a half north of the city by train. Okay. And um, so can you tell me a little bit about your like childhood, like school and like family life, and what was your what was your relationship with like as your parents? Like how 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 did they raise you? Um, well, my mom is very religious, um, very religiously Roman Catholic. And um, so I was raised in the Catholic Church. I was baptized in the Catholic Church when I was a newborn. 
I received my first communion, first confirmation, and got confirmed when I was 14. So it was a pretty strict upbringing in that sense, but in other senses, I had a lot of freedom growing up because my parents pretty much couldn't figure out how to control me and how to punish me in a way that I would actually learn my lesson. So I was allowed to pretty much do whatever I wanted and got away with it. And, and what was that? Why, why was that? So they couldn't figure out consequences that would affect you or, or they did and it didn't affect you or what? They couldn't figure out consequences that would affect me. Like they would try to ground me and I would find a way to escape the house and hang out with my friends still. Um, they would try to take things away from me and I would just find something else to do instead. Stuff like that. Just didn't phase you. Yeah, it just didn't phase me. Okay. What kind of things were you getting in trouble um, for as a kid? Um, as a kid growing up, it was things like um, getting into fights with other kids, doing really stupid, dangerous things that could have gotten me killed. Like, like we like we used to, um, as kids growing up, we would bring our little tykes wagon up to the top of the tallest hill on our block and flip the handle around while you sat inside it. And then one of my friends would push me down. And the only way you could stop the wagon was to crash it. Oh, shoot. All yeah. right. Sounds like fun. Yeah, it was a lot <laughs> like of fun. It. I mean, I used to do stuff like that. We used to get, um, you know, you remember those power wheels, like little cars, like little yeah, small electric little battery cars for, for kids. And we used to get those and bring them to the top of a, a hill. I used to live on this really steep um, hill in, in California, Montezuma. That was a street and it was a really steep hill and we used to do stuff like that. So what was like something that, I mean, you getting in trouble as a kid, like that's not really like super crazy, you know, is there anything that happened as a kid that, you know, what, what was it that your parents were like struggling with the most? Um, the most that my parents were struggling with is um, my gender. Cause it was, I was born female and it was very apparent from the time I was like three, four years old that I wanted to be a boy. Okay. And my mom was the one who struggled with that. My dad, he didn't really care. He was like, it's your life. It's your, it's up to you what you want to do with it. And if you want to be my son, then that's, that's your decision to make. But my mom was just like, no, you were born with a female body. So you have to be a woman when you grow up and you have to be my daughter. I'm assuming that her coming from like a religious background, that's something that yeah, that pretty much came from, right? Yeah. I mean, like I remember when I was about, um, I was about like 10 or 11 years old, my cousin Andrew, uh, my, my mom's side of the family, he came out as gay. And when I started asking my mom questions about it, she told me, oh, your cousin Andrew is going to go to hell for being gay. Mm. And she told me like all gay people and trans people go to hell. And how old were you? I was about 10, 11. And at this time, did your, your mom, were you already expressing, um, you know, ideas or, or, or you know, wanting to, to change genders? I mean, I was showing signs of wanting to transition when I was about, like, four or five years old. Because by the time I was seven or eight, I started looking like a little boy to the point where my parents would get compliments on how adorable and sweet their son was. Okay, but at this time, you you still hadn't expressed this to your parents. I mean, I um, I did like I do remember when I was six years old asking my parents if they could start calling me Anthony, and I didn't know what pronouns were, so I asked them to 
use boy words for me, basically being like use he him pronouns for me, but in my own six year old way. And my dad was just all like, whatever you want to do. And my mom was like, no, you, you can't do that. Okay. So, and then, so I'm, I'm assuming that that created arguments between your parents. Um, yeah, it did create a lot of arguments between my parents growing up. That must have been tough. That must have been really confusing as well. Yeah, it was pretty tough and confusing because, I mean, I would be in my room trying to sleep at night and hear my parents arguing about sending me to therapy. My mom just being like, no, I can handle this myself. And my dad saying, well, you've been trying to handle this yourself for um, years now. Like, our son is eight years old now, and he still hasn't changed at all. So he needs therapy. And my dad saying to my mom, well, Anthony's pediatrician said that he needs therapy, so why don't we take him? It doesn't hurt to try. And and did that happen? Did you did they take you to therapy or it wasn't until I was fifteen and um finally started like reaching out for help from other people in my community, more specifically my guidance counselor, Adam, who I still meet with on a weekly basis. He mentors me now. Um I reached out to him and explained to him what I was going through throughout my childhood. And I mean, he has a daughter who was in my class growing up. So he had watched me grow up and he knew. And I remember him telling me um, about a year or two later after I came out that when I came out to him, he felt relieved because he said that he was so worried by the time I was 15 that I was going to commit suicide. So he was very happy once I finally came forward to him and was like, yeah, I, I, I'm trans. I need to do something about this. Now, growing up, um, were those thoughts that, that you, did you have suicidal thoughts? Um, or it, did, did you have those thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I remember the first time having a suicidal thought was when I was about six years old. Ooh. Yeah, I was sitting in my mom's car. We were going to religious ed, and I was waiting on my mom to get in the car and start it. And I was sitting in my car seat and staring ahead in front of me, just like, why do I continue to live? Like, why am I continuing to do this if I'm not getting to live the life that I'm supposed to live? Which meant like, why am I continuing to live if I don't get to be a boy? That's pretty deep for a six-year-old. That's that's tough, man. That's a lot. So, so I guess let's fast forward a little bit. So, you said you were 15 and at 15 you decided to come out and tell your parents like this is this is this is it and what was that like you said because i know you you told me that you had written a letter and uh, i know you sent it to me i haven't read it yet but um the letter that you sent to your parents what was that what was that like um that was honestly pretty empowering for me to sit down and spend the hours that i did typing up that letter and um printing it out and having Adam proofread it and then him telling me that it was very beautifully written and that he honestly could feel the feelings that I felt in the stories I was telling in the letter. And then I handed it to my parents that evening and they read it. And something that my dad actually told me um, a couple of years ago is that he still has held on to the letter to this day. Well, that's, that's pretty deep, man. That's, that must be a good feeling actually. How, what, what were how did your, how did your parents react? Um, my dad reacted to it. He just pretty much sat me down, just the two of us, and was like, and you know, told me 
that he understood where I was coming from and that he's known practically my entire life that I'm his son, that it's just going to take an adjustment period for him to start consistently calling me a different name and using different pronouns for me and calling me his son. Yeah, which is fair. I mean, that's, I mean, very, that's, of course, that's going to be difficult to. Yeah. And I mean, I told him that I understood that perfectly, that as long as he was putting the effort in that I was happy. And he asked me if I would send him some links to some books that he could buy online and um, some information that he could read up on so that he could understand where I'm coming from and understand like what all is involved in the process of medically transitioning. That's awesome. It sounds like your dad's been real supportive. Yeah, he has been real supportive. Yeah. And then uh, your mom, how did, that was a different story, right? That did. Yeah, that was a whole different story. Okay. How did she feel about it? How did she, what did she say? She said that she wanted um, me to get an official diagnosis for what's called gender dysphoria, which is like in layman's term, the mental illness that causes people to be trans. And um, she also told me that she wanted me to start meeting with a priest about it. Coming from that religious background. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I get that, man. I I do understand that. My mom was a very religious person. And, um, you know, my mom passed away four years ago to an overdose. And uh, when my mom, for the most part, when my mom was sober, she would, she was very religious, go to church all the time. I, you know, I grew up going to church on Sundays, you know, I used to fight it a lot though. I didn't, you know, that's not something that I wanted to do, but I get that. Um, I get that feeling, you know, and uh, from what I understand and from what I feel from with my mom is that she, you know, she, that's all she knew. She grew up like that. So that's what she tried to try to do with her kids, you know? So, um, but at the same time, I, you know, I could see the struggle or the, you know, it being difficult with her not, you know, not understanding, I guess, or not trying to understand. She, it sounds like she didn't try to understand what you wanted to do or what you decided. Yeah. I mean, she really never tried. Like I would present her with all this information, books, literature, all that stuff. She just wasn't hearing it. Yeah. And she wouldn't, she wouldn't even pick up the books. Okay. So, and that you said, so this was about 15 years old, right? Yeah. So when did your drug use start and um, when, when did that start? Um, that started when I was about, um, I was about like 14 years old. I started experimenting. Okay. Now looking back, do you, um, have you kind of figured out why you started experimenting or it's still kind of? I mean, I have started looking back not only through, um, like the, through the step work I've been doing with my sponsor Narcotics Anonymous, but also in individual therapy and my um my weekly zoom meetings with adam as to why i started using and i know that a lot of it has to do with me being transgender because i mean um i remember even when i was in active addiction having the thought that being high and under the influence was the only time where i actually felt somewhat like a normal person if that's even a thing hmm so you were trying to you were were you trying to cover up those feelings or these feelings that you had that you wanted to change or or you it was more so me wanting to cover up the discomfort that I felt in, in my own skin and in my body and was the discomfort did that come from the outside uh, because of people how they reacted to that or or 
was it discomfort within yourself? Like you didn't want to feel like that. It was a combination of both. Okay. Cause I mean, it's very distressing when you have a male brain and your brain's telling you you're supposed to have a male body, but mm. you look down and see something completely different. Yeah. I can imagine it. Um, it's kind of like, um, to put it into perspective, like when someone, um, gets a really gruesome injury, like someone breaking their leg and they can see the bone poking out of their leg and you look down and see that that's mm. pretty much what it feels like to be transgender. Yeah. At least in my experience, I can't speak for anybody else, but speaking for myself, that's how it feels to me. Wow. That's, that's a lot. Yeah. So, so did using drugs, um, like what type of drugs did you start using? Um, in the beginning, it was just um, vaping, um, THC, and also um, alcohol. Okay. And um, did any of these substances uh, make you feel better? Did they get you out of, you know, did they cover up the feelings that you were trying to cover? Yeah, they covered up all the negative emotions I didn't want to feel. Okay. So as soon as you get that relief, um, basically you just want to keep feeling that relief, right? Yeah. And that's that's kind of where, you know, addiction kind of comes in, basically. Um, yeah, I mean, honestly, like, I remember the first time that I got high off of weed, I got the thought, oh, my God, this feels way too good. And then I instantly got the thought, oh, I fucked up. Mm. You get that feeling like, um, I remember being 15 myself and, and I started using meth at 15. And I remember as soon as I, I used it, I was like, wow, this, like, I, this is how I want to feel all the time. And, and I, I remember even saying the words like, I'm, uh, I'm a drug addict and uh, like being okay with it. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much how I was. I was just like, I want to get more of this. I want to start feeling this even more often than I am right now. And then was like, fuck, I'm an addict. Well, yeah. okay, whatever. Yeah. So, so marijuana, uh, alcohol, uh, tobacco, vaping, and then from talking to you, like I know you started using cocaine as well, right? Yeah, that was about when I was 18. Okay. And so now using drugs, like I know as an addict myself, um, you kind of why, why is it you think that you started using cocaine and switching? Like, if, if weed made you feel that good, like, why? what made you want to go and switch to another substance? Honestly, it was because the weed wasn't doing anything for me anymore. Okay. I would smoke, um, I could smoke, like, a whole gram and nothing. Mm. And you built up that tolerance, and then it's yeah. just not the same, you know? Nothing's ever the same. Like, the first time you get high, you know? Um, the only time, like, I would feel what I wanted to with weed was if I took like a huge tolerance break, you know, I would stop for a couple of months and then do it again. And like, but then that it, it goes away quickly. So, I mean, that was pretty much the plan in the beginning was I was just like, I'm going to replace weed with cocaine for a little bit here. And then I ended up getting addicted to Coke. Um, now are you just using cocaine or did you get into crack? Um, it was only ever powder cocaine. I, I reached out for help before it got to the point where I started, doing crack or shooting anything up. Yeah. So 
so this is about 18, you know, started using about 14, 15, going into cocaine around 18. What kind of trouble was, um, you know, using, getting you into? Um, I mean, I never got in trouble with the law. I never actually got caught with anything or at least got caught in a case where the police actually cared. Mm. But um, it was more so causing me problems with um, housing, um, financial stability, securing enough food to be able to get by, that kind of stuff. Okay, so your life was becoming unmanageable in the sense of, you know, all those things, besides any, pretty much everything besides criminal or besides law. Yeah, and I mean, I even noticed, like, my mental health slipping. Yeah. I was getting more depressed, which I was like, why am I, which I eventually got the thought, why am I using drugs to stop feeling depressed, but I'm getting more depressed? Because, mm. I mean, um, this time last year, I was living out of the motel room by myself, and I would go anywhere from a week and a half to two weeks without even so much as putting on deodorant, let alone a shower. Yeah. Pretty much after a while, like all you care about is that high and, and, and seeking and finding the drugs, doing the drugs, when you're going to get the drugs next. And like all, everything else goes out the window, family, you know, personal care, like everything. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And uh, so you said this time last year, how old, how old are you now? 19. 19. So this, so this happened pretty quick. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about... Um, how you came to want to get clean and sober. Like what, what, what was the event that said, Hey man, like this, this has got to stop. Like I got to do something. I got to change. Um, it pretty much was, um, back in March of this year. Um, I had a seizure that could have honestly killed me if I would have been alone. Um, and I ended up, um, walking over to the CVS that one of my friends worked at to go and, walk her home from work. And when I got there, um, about like not even 10 minutes later, I had a seizure. And when I came to, and about like a few hours later, when we were in the ER, I eventually realized like, I got to get my shit together. I could have died. Mm. And it was in that moment that I realized that there's some sort of power greater than myself out there that wants me alive and wants me to get clean and help others. And, so what, and then what happened? How did you, what, where did you go? What did you? Um, about two weeks later, I um, went into a recovery house. I was there for about 10 days and then I relapsed on weed and then um, went to a mental hospital for five days to detox and then went to another recovery house. And that organization ended up putting me in a woman's home. And that just was a whole traumatic experience for me. Mm because it's pretty messed up being a 19 year old straight guy who likes women in a woman's house. Yeah. I imagine. Yeah. So, um, I ended up talking to some of the staff there and then came to McShin. Okay. And that was on April 25th that I got to McShin. I remember back then, I remember uh, meeting you at the smoke shack, um, here at the McShin foundation, we got a smoke shack. It's where everyone goes to smoke and you know, where relationships are started and, that wasn't funny. That wasn't funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyways, yeah, smoke check. So, um, and I believe you moved into La France, right? Yeah, I was at La France for the first week I was here, and it was exactly one week later that I moved into Smith House. Okay. And what is, um, you've been doing pretty well. Like, you haven't 
had a lapse or, you know, a recurrence of use and um, you are, you know, positive guy around the house, you're responsible, you, you know, you, you, you're changing. Like I said, you know, from what you told me, like you were doing in the past, like you, you definitely have made a 180. Like, so what is there, like, is there anything you want to talk to me about or anything you want to share? You know, I know that recently on Sunday, this past Sunday, it was the first time that you kind of said, Hey, I'm, I'm transgender in, in, in public. And, you know, you did it in front of everyone here at Michin. And I don't know if you realize it or not, but that I was also live streaming that. So that's on YouTube now. Yeah. I mean, I didn't realize that in the moment, honestly. How did I, did it just come out naturally? Or did you know what you were doing when you went up there? Yeah, I mean, it pretty much just came out naturally. I was like, I feel like it's about time that I start being honest about this because it's only going to benefit me and other people. Yeah, that's that's awesome, man. Like that, that, it takes a lot to do that, especially in front of peers. You, you know, people, especially you being so young. You, you know, would you say you're nineteen? Yeah, yeah, only nineteen years old, and just putting it all out there. That's that's big, man. Yeah, I mean, if you ask me, like, there's not very many people my age who are able to live on their own, support themselves, and also be able to stay clean and mm. even make the choice to get clean in the first place. Yeah, getting clean at a young age is very difficult. It's very hard to do. I've I'm 35, and um, I've been in and out of treatment centers since I was 17. Went to my first one when I was 17, and um, it's taken me a long time to, to you know, put together, you know, I, I almost have a year. I got a year coming up on the 1st of January, so this is the longest time I've ever had clean. And um, I know a lot of it has to do with, like, just being young and feel like it was a, it was a mixture of stuff, like feeling like I'm missing out, feeling like I don't have a problem, I'm not like them. I, you know, I still have things, you know, I um, just not, you know, I had to lose everything. I had to lose everything to, to you know, to want to get clean. So, you know. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, something that motivated me was when I talked to um, this one transgender woman that I know that's in recovery in Richmond and she told me one day that she can't have her medical transition without recovery because I mean, they won't perform any surgeries on you, even if you have nicotine in your system, let alone cocaine hmm. or fentanyl. So what's, so what's the process on that? Like what? Like um, going about getting surgeries. Is that what you're trying to do? Um, yeah. Eventually I want to. What, how does that work? How do you, how, what are you, are you taking, what steps do you need to take to do that? Um, pretty much like it depends on the surgery that you're getting. Cause with most trans guys, they'll get what's called top surgery, which is basically a double mastectomy, like removing both breasts. Mm -hmm. And then there's bottom surgery, which is basically giving you a penis. Okay. And if you want to, they can remove what you already have, like your uterus, ovaries and vagina and stuff. So, um, eventually so there's two different processes for both of them. So with top surgery, it's a lot easier. You can you can do what's called informed consent, which is basically where you sign a document stating, I know the risks that are involved with this, and they operate on you. Or you um, sometimes, in order, especially if you want to get it covered through insurance, you have to get 
letters of recommendations from mental health professionals, like a therapist, psychiatrist, psychologist, and you need at least one or two, depending on your insurance. But if you do get those, you know, approvals from the doctors, like your insurance will cover it. Um, yeah, but sometimes they leave you with a copay and that kind of stuff. Okay. It depends on who you have. And then I can imagine like in order to get those signatures from those doctors, you got to prove to them that you're in a, um, the right state of mind and that you are, you know, not. Not doing it impulsively. Yeah. And yeah, then when a lot of decisions are made impulsively when you're using drugs or under the influence a lot, you know? Yeah. So I could see that. So is, is getting clean and sober and, and is staying in recovery, is that a big part of, um, is that a big part of the reason why you are in recovery? Um, it definitely is one of the big reasons, but honestly, and like the biggest reason is because I want to be able to prove to not only, um, people who are significantly older than me, but also people around my age that you can get clean at a young age and stay clean yeah. and be living proof to other teenagers out there who are struggling with addiction. That's awesome. I mean, my eventual goal in life is to go to college and um, go through graduate school and get my doctorate and become a child psychologist. And I would love to be able to sit there and say to my patients, hey, I got clean at 19 and I have X amount of decades clean now. You can do it. Yeah. There's no reason why you can't get clean and stay clean as a teenager. And also a big part of it is too, is being transgender. Like that's huge. Like that's not, there's not a lot of people out there that I can't imagine, you know, I don't, I don't actually know the statistics on that, but like getting clean at a young age, going through that process and um, you could help so many people that are in the same position as you are right now. Yeah. I mean, like I have friends out there in New York who I, um, who I keep tabs on through other people. I don't have direct communication with them, but I know enough people that I can ask, hey, how is this dude doing? And I have friends who are the same age as me and transgender as well who are struggling with addiction right now, and it's just getting worse and worse. Mm. And I've tried, like, reaching out to them directly and offering help, but they typically are like, eh, I don't really have a problem. I'm, I'm going to be fine. And I'm like, dude, like, your doctor won't even prescribe you testosterone. It's that bad. Like, you can't even get hormones. It's that bad. So why don't you accept this help? Mm. That's big, man. I commend you for that. That's, like, that's that's awesome that you want to do stuff like that. I, uh, it's an honor to, 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 to know you and to, you know, to, to, to live with you and to see you walk, you know, and do the things that you're doing right now. And, um. I do appreciate all the interactions that we have and, you know, um, you are, you bring, you do bring like a, a, a vibe to the house and to, you know, to myself too. Like, you know, I, I, when I talk to you, like it's, it's easy to, you're easy to talk to. And like, I, we laugh, you know, we joke around and stuff. And like, there's not a lot of people that I do that with or that I even try to do that with. Like, and with you, like, I don't even try, like it just happens, which is cool. You know? Yeah. I mean, I've definitely, on that compliment before so thank yeah. you very much yeah man and i mean you're definitely one of my favorite people in the house appreciate it man um so dexter let's put dexter in the shot my dinosaur tell me about dexter um 
he's my stuffed toy dinosaur that I've had for about a year now who's in recovery with me. Like in the beginning, I took him everywhere with me, but now I'm starting to like slowly wean myself off of him because one of the reasons why I used was anxiety. Mm. But um, so I pretty much was like, well, what's worse, getting high and killing myself or getting embarrassed because I carry around a stuffed toy dinosaur with me. So I was like, I'll just carry around a stuffed toy dinosaur with me. Like, fuck what everybody else thinks. Yeah, man, fuck them. Yeah, if they think I'm weird, then fuck off. <laughs> and and I, mean, I, th- I think it's awesome. I think it's really cool. Like, And it's been working, right? Yeah. It works. Dexter is also a, is one of us. He's an addict. Yeah. And uh, Dexter used to get high. Yeah. Um, off them dinosaur drugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And dino drugs. <laughs> so, and, uh, you know, Dexter has been there for Anthony's done this with them and it's it's a very cool um it's a cool idea you know it's a cool thing to do and and like you said man fuck everyone like you know you do you and whatever works for you is is good right yeah i mean i also like you know being trans i was the weird kid growing up like i was the weird girl who looked like a boy so i've kind of gotten used to just being seen as the weird kid per se mm-hmm. so i'm like if i'm the weird guy at mcshin then who gives a fuck and, and what's what's cool is like you've kind of become that like a, some type of a staple in McShin, like yeah, you know, dinosaur boy, like yeah. you know, as John Shinholzer would say. Yeah, and it's really cool, man. Like, um, I feel like for the most part, everyone I know at least just accepts who you are and and what you, you know what that's that's a really cool thing about McShin, and we got a really cool community and a very understanding, and um, there's just a lot of good people in this program. Yeah, I remember one day Clay, the men's program director, he, um, I was helping Barbie out with some chores around the church, and I had left Dexter in one of the rooms, and Clay asked me when I was sitting down with him in his office to get a sip of water and check in on him real quick, um, where Dexter was at, and I was like, oh, he's in the room next door, and then he was like, oh, so Dexter currently has an absent father, and I was like, yep, I just went out and got some cigarettes and never came back. <laughs> and he just died of laughter. Yeah, that's cool, man. Like that's that's a that's a cool thing about McShin too is that the staff here is pretty. Um, they're all they're they're awesome. Like they they you know everyone's hired from within. Everyone's in recovery. Uh, I would say ninety percent of the people that work here have gone through McShin themselves, so they know. And um, yeah, and I mean, we even have some current staff like yourself and Kyle, who's another guy at our house that currently are in housing. Mm-hmm. Yep. Is there anything else you wanna you wanna share with me or anything? You know, I didn't. We don't. I don't. I don't have a lot of time today because I we are going to the jail today to do a speaker uh, event, um, another get in the herd type thing. Um, we're going out to Henrico East Jail, and uh, we have Mo, the um, who used to be the men's program manager here. He's going to be speaking tonight. So, but I would like to do another podcast with you and go a little bit more in detail and um, about some of the stuff you went through today. We kind of, I just kind of, you know, went through, I guess the the outside a little bit, you know? Yeah. You know what I'm trying to say? This is, this is honestly, this is my first podcast that I've, I've done um, as a host or interviewing. So, you know, bear with me. Um, I'm learning how to do this. I think you did a fantastic job. Thanks man. I appreciate it. Is there anything else you want to share with everyone? Um, not that I can think of at the moment, no. Awesome. So we'll, we'll, we'll make sure we get you on the pod again and, and we'll go in, into more detail. That way you can 
you know, share more of your story. That way, you know, people out there that are, that are going through or have gone through can um, see what you're doing and how you did it. And that way you can, you know, help others. Yeah, I mean, when you used to get in the pod, I'm, I'm such a nicotine addict that I immediately was like, oh, jewel pots. <laughs> <laughs> Podcast. So, all right, man, I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Anthony. You guys stay in the herd. My bad. Hi, everyone. I'm Honesty Liller. I am the CEO of the McShen Foundation and a woman in long-term recovery. Since May 27, 2007, I have not used drugs or alcohol. Woo -woo. Thank you so, so much to the Richmond Times Dispatch and all of our voters for getting the Herd podcast. Those podcasts are amazing. Not only has it helped thousands upon thousands of people in their recovery, as well as family members, but it has helped me in my personal recovery. I get to listen to them now in my car through Spotify and iHeartRadio. And it's just really, really important for us to be innovative in the addiction field and the recovery community. So when COVID hit, we had to be innovative. You know, we really had to think of like, what can we do to reach people that cannot go to 12-step meetings? smart recovery, faith-based, whatever, um, that we're shutting down constantly. So we were innovative here at McShin. Let's start podcast. So with Todd, John, Alex, um, and some other staff, you know, we all just kind of jumped in who can do what. And um, with Todd's lead and John's lead, the podcasts have been amazing and we're still doing them today. So I want to thank you for all of your votes and all of your energy and all of your support of our mission of healing families and saving lives. Thanks.